This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, I'm Christy Schreiber. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we begin our third episode of Sir William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Today's episode is titled The Discovery of the Beast and takes us past the midway part of our discussion of the cultural catastrophe of Golding's Island Experiment. So to recap, in chapter one, the boys crash into an Eden-like island and they find a conch. They unite the survivors by blowing it. They elect Ralph as their leader and they explore the island. That's right. And we end the chapter with the first hunt. Jack tries and fails to kill a pig. So, in chapter 2, they make a rule that only the person with the conch can speak. A six-year-old boy with a birthmark brings up the problem that they are all afraid of, and that is a beastie. Ralph suggests that they start a fire on the mountain and seek to get rescued, and Jack promises that he and his hunters will keep the fire going. In chapter 3, we have the second hunt. This time, Jack goes by himself, but he fails to kill the pig. Ralph can't get anyone to help him build shelters. He and Jack have a dispute as to whether Jack and his hunters, remember those are the former choir boys, should help build shelters or hunt. And then finally, Simon wanders off into the jungle alone. And in chapter four, Jack finally kills his pig. And this is the third hunt in the book. The problem with this hunt is that in order to be successful, he makes the decision to pull all of his hunters away from making the fire. And ironically, it so happens that as soon as the hunters leave, the fire dies and a ship passes by and doesn't see them. They come back jubilant that they have a pig, but everyone is irate with Jack because by making this choice, he forgoes the opportunity to finally leave the island Jack takes the blame, and this results in a major dispute, which ultimately ends up with Jack hitting Piggy and breaking his glasses. This is also where the boys unite by cooking the pig and eating it together, which, of course, ends with this very disturbing introduction of a ritual where Maurice pretends to be a pig and the hunters pretend to beat him. And this, of course, is what I'm going to call the fourth hunt. If you only consider the hunts of actual pigs and then the two of humans, spoiler, There are only six hunts, but there are these other ones that I think are equally important. And so we're going to consider them in the final count, which for reasons I think we'll understand as we go along. Okay. Well, rituals uh, and other 
civilization building means are going to be important elements of our discussion today as we explore chapters 5 through 8. Last week, we talked about the different ways people approach the reading of the book and the way you should not approach the reading of this book. And we basically said that we should not approach this book expecting a realistic unfolding of what would happen on an island of boys if they were dropped off. That's right. And that whole bit about the ship passing just at the exact wrong moment is kind of an example of that. Uh, But it's not to say that Golding's not trying to portray people as they really are because that's exactly what he's trying to do. But in fiction, as they say, we're trying to be more true than nonfiction. And remember, he's illustrating humanity as a mythologist, uh, not a photographer. Okay, so you're saying that if boys dropped off on an island, if they were dropped off on an island, they wouldn't do these things? I don't I don't know, but probably not. I mean, this book only covers about two months of time. There's no explicit marking of the passage of time, but we can tell how Pat, how time is progressing because of the growth of the hair on the boys. Uh, I think probably if boys were dropped off on an island, realistically, uh, there would be a lot of them that would be hurt. Uh, they would probably be trying to live off the supplies that were in the plane uh, peanuts or pretzels, I don't know. They would try to get the radio to work. The point is, that's not the point. The point is to make, uh, well, let me say it this way. The point is, don't look for what's not there. Look for what's clearly there and derive your meaning from that. And to be able to do that, we had a short discussion on what uh, the philosopher Hobbes calls the natural man. Uh, natural man in his original condition, which is a worldview Golding adopts and expresses. And these boys are indeed natural. And I want to remind everybody of Hobbes's most famous quote about life, the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The kind of man you want to invite home for Christmas cheer, for oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> So we also talked about Freud's understanding of the id, ego, and superego, as well as the governmental contrast of democracy versus totalitarianism, all of which are introduced in a relatively short period of time, actually in in one day. That's right. And that's going to bring us to chapters five through eight, which are kind of boring if you're sitting around waiting for the violence to crank up. And I have to confess, that's what I find myself doing when I read this book, because I know it's coming. Well, but those chapters are not boring. They're going to set up the whole frame (laughs) that we need. And so there's going to be some great things that go on there. From a political point of view, these chapters are clearly about the devolution of civilization. As we see, since we start democratically and we end with totalitarianism uh, and a serious discussion through these childlike voices as to how that happens... Because very few of us wake up and decide, I think I'm going to support an evil tyrant. It's the choices we make and the reasons that we make them that get us what we didn't want. It's not just the devolution of government that's occurring as well. It's the devolution of the actual children themselves. And this is expressed symbolically in various ways. Uh, We see the growing of the hair, the lack of concern over where they go to the bathroom or if they're even clean as well as the devolution, as we're going to see, of the spoken word, where in chapter 2, Ralph gives speeches. By chapter 6, Ralph is going to say things like, I'm chief, I'll go, don't argue. It's like they're turning into cavemen. (laughs) And most obviously by chapter 8, Jack has stripped off his clothes altogether and he's running around naked. And he's moved into a cave. That's exactly right. And for that reason, before we get into the chapter-by-chapter discussion, and even though last week we took this little political science detour, I really think we should take two additional very quick detours. Uh, One is a theological one, and one is going to be a psychological one, because I think we need to have these in our mind as we approach these very complicated passages. All right, the first framework that I really want us to have in mind is comes from Jewish theology. We know, of course, that Golding is going to borrow heavily from biblical typology, meaning the archetypes and the symbols Mm -hmm. of the Bible. And we see this, uh, of course, through the character of Simon, which is not uh, an Old Testament reference at all, 
uh, but uh, we'll talk about that uh, later on. But there's this older typology, and I think it's even more interesting than the one in Simon, and that's this typology of the sibling rivalry, which is the basis of the first book of the Hebrew Bible. Now, in Genesis, we see that sibling rivalry is a theme set up in the very fourth chapter, and it goes through the entire book with a series of four brothers. But in the very first one, we see in Genesis 4, Cain is jealous of Abel and kills him. Now, this is important because this act is going to introduce violence into humanity. So the first act of violence was brother versus brother. And in this sense, warfare begins. God will exile Cain and restrict revenge killings by promising divine retribution sevenfold, but this does not curtail man's bloodthirst. And we're shortly going to see the sons of Cain committing acts of warfare, building weapons, and violence is all over the world. Warfare has basically taken off. So are you saying that's the point of the Genesis story? Well, you know, I don't dare speak for God. Or if you believe these stories are an expression of a collective human consciousness, I don't speak for the The collective human consciousness. You don't speak for the Jungian psychologists either? I just want to point out from a literary perspective that what we have is a Garden of Eden, and then we're immediately introduced, introduced to a sibling rivalry. And I'm going to consider Ralph and Jack to be brothers. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair that this parallel uh, is to be made. And I think that uh, whether you see it as divine institution or evolution or however you got there, I think Golding is pointing out that there is something deep and ancient in the human constitution that makes us see our brothers as our rivals and potential threats. And it is in this context that violence emerges. For me, that's what's going on when we look at this rivalry between, and it seems like a pointless rivalry between Ralph and Jack. Well, let me interrupt for a second. I think is a great golden observation because after all, he's in post-World War II, the post-World War II world. This This kind of thinking would have been common. Well, and it doesn't make sense. Why can't they both build shelters and why can't they both go hunting? But no, they have to see it in this rivalry way, which I think is larger than just what little boys would do. And I would like to say this too. Golden lived through not one, but two world wars, the ultimate expressions of rivalry. And he fought. He didn't Mm -hmm. just watch. All right. So let me back up because although this is a story of sibling rivalry, and that is a very interesting way to look at the book, it's more than that and it's more complex and it's more nuanced because there are not just two characters in the story it's not a Cain and Abel story there are many boys and it's more interesting for us to take a look at the other boys because I think that should be the focus of our analysis definitely um and of course Goldie said this himself when he said I set out to discover what there is in man that makes him do what he does And it seems that it's not just one thing. It's a very important distinction to make that every boy on this island is different and is operating very differently, which is very Hobbesian, by the way. Piggy, for example, is a very complex character. He's the first and only boy to try to organize them, and that's a fact that is going to come up when they are rescued by the soldiers and ask how many of them there are. Yet, as soon as we meet him, he rushes away with a bout of diarrhea, wears spectacles, suffers from asthma, their their mispronunciation of asthma, overeats, can't swim, won't work, and has abysmal English grammar. And all these deficits mark him to be the immediate recipient of abuse, and abuse initially by Ralph, who is in some ways the, the noble king in the story. Yes, and that becomes very obvious. I read one British commentator that says this is representative of the class system in England, but honestly, I have absolutely no idea about that. What I do feel more confident and find more relevant to talk about is that Piggy is an excellent example of the complexity of these characters and will unfold them naturally through the story, but it's fundamental to think about the fact that not everyone is the same and we don't think the same. We're not motivated by the same thing and we don't have the same morality. Nor that I do I think we can say with any kind of honesty that all people are good or moral and that not all people are evil or bad. Some people are truly good. 
Others are just flat out evil. But most of us are going to be kind of in the middle. Thinking about that leads me to Jonathan Haidt, the professor at NYU, expert in moral psychology, and of course, best-selling author. And he's famous for the metaphor, morality is the glue that holds the community together. And he says, humans are 90% chimp, but 10% be evolved to bind together for the good of the hive. So this binding is an essential part of, of our morality. What Haidt seems to be interested in, in a modern political sense, is how we can build constructive and peaceful societies. And of course, these are moral questions. He came up with something that's called the moral foundation fear theory, which basically says that there's these five, like, I, I don't want, I shudder to use the word pillars because it's not his word, but foundations uh, that people use to determine in their own right. minds what is moral or immoral for them. And so, of course, you have the original one, care versus harm, that is uh, an ancient idea. If it doesn't cause harm, then it's good. This idea of fairness versus cheating, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, sanctity versus degradation, and then more recently, they've added liberty versus oppression. Now, I think it's interesting that although The Lord of the Flies was written 50 years before Haidt wrote his book, The Righteous Mind, where these all came from, and the word morality is not even mentioned. The boys don't even think about it uh, at all anywhere in in the book, but these are exactly the dynamics that are at play, and we're going to see them play out in chapters 5 through 8. And according to Haidt, uh, these are all intuitive. So you're not cognitively saying, no, I'm going to be loyal, I'm going to be fair, I'm going to be honest. You just do it. Is, would that be why he chose boys to do this? They, they were not mature enough to calculate? They just expressed these things easily? Well, and they're highly more immoral than girls, of course. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, his wife, to be honest, this is just an aside, Golding's wife was really upset that he would always have these male characters. And uh, he never gave an explanation about that, but... If I'm going to speculate, he worked in an all-boys school. It's, it's probably what he knew. and Sure. Uh, Again, writers writing out of what they know. And, of course, if you want my input, boys are much more simple than girls. So, you know, you have that. But oh, Well, there's not <laughs> enough time on this podcast to argue that. Go but ahead. anyway, let's get to the real point. Hyde is going to describe a morality as kind of an audio equalizer. That's his metaphor. So you have these series of sli- slider switches that represent these different kind of uh, spectrums or pillars on the moral spectrum. And they're going to, one is going to take precedent over the other. So what we're going to watch are these boys operating and they're all going to be making different moral judgments, kind of sliding up and down different moral switches. Now, some of them are very highly moral by golding standards. We're going to see that in Simon. He's highly caring from the day one. He respects authority. He has this connection to the sanctified or sanctity in general. And he is a clear proponent of liberty. And then we're going to see Jack is clearly immoral. But check this out. He has this this moral spectrum in that he values authority and he values loyalty, two things that he highly demands uh, from the people that he eventually is going to hijack from the tribe. So right. I'd like to point this out, too. He highly demands them, but he offers those same things to no one else. That's true. He is his own moral authority on all mm-hmm. things. The other boys are going to be in the middle. But by chapter 8, we see them all struggling to find this moral compass. And it seems that morality in the way an average person would define morality is almost gone. And savagery is taking over. And you're left to think about how did immorality or savagery or whatever negative word you're going to put in there prevail What is the answer to keeping man in check? So what what does all this have to do with chapters 5 through 8? These chapters are about the boys' attempt to build a civilization. They're kind of bookend by two assemblies. And these assemblies are going to be symbolic representations of a government of sorts. Keep the idea of sibling rivalry in mind as we read. Keep the idea of these moral foundations in your mind and think about what is each boy intuitively valuing and which value prevails. What kind of society do these boys ultimately create? And is this what they wanted? And how did they get there? 
We also need to think about what is making them vulnerable to tyranny. At the beginning of the book, Golding asks questions. I said this. He asks questions and he doesn't really answer them. I think that's primarily true. Uh, but um, he's going to say for sure that civilization can be a mess. And it will take some thinking to get out of it. All right, should we go chapter by chapter, taking a look? Let's do it. Let's jump in and see what's going on. Chapter 5, Beast from the Water. Yes, and we have started off, like I said, we're going to have an assembly. So Ralph is pacing the beach. He's going to blow the conch. He gets everybody together and he's going to say, okay, we have to have business. No more fun. We're going to stop talking about fun, which is an important word because this word is going to, this is another motif. This word of fun comes back quite often. It's Jack's operative word. Yeah, we're going to see that. So, uh, He's going to struggle with what to say because he's going to talk about this idea. I don't know what I need to think. I need to think. And you see Jack, not Jack, you see Ralph struggle with consciousness. He's trying to find awareness. And this is another important idea that we're going to see stringing through. At the very beginning, he's very unconscious. He's not careful about thinking. He doesn't care about thinking. But now he wants to. He wants to think. And he has trouble. And he looks to Piggy. And he says, I can't think like Piggy. Right. Uh, Piggy, of course, has this real affection for the conch, for order. Um, In fact, he clings to it almost uh, more than he probably should. So um, they talk about the fire, and he reiterates that uh, the fire is, he says this, the fire is the most important thing on the island. How can we ever be rescued except by luck if we don't keep a fire going? Is the fire too much for us to make? Well, and interestingly enough, that is his focus. That is his direction. Um, he's also starting to become very concerned about how dirty the place is getting. He is becoming aware that chaos is setting in. And he talks about basically toilets and using the rocks. And uh, the places are getting dirty, which is interesting because anybody who's a student of most wartime situations at least up until most recent wars, know that most soldiers are going to die from disease as opposed to bullets. So those conditions can overtake uh, very, very quickly. Well, let me point out, let me interrupt you right there for a second, because those are symbols. Now, uh, fire is, of course, an an archetypal symbol. We see it in lots of literature. But in this case, it's a connection to civilization. It's hope knowledge, light, life. It's their rebirth. It's getting out. Mm -hmm. So we're supposed to think of it as in this archetypal sense. Now, there are several kinds of symbols when you read, and this is just generic. You have your archetypal symbols that everybody knows, but then authors will create their own personal symbols that only exist within the context of their book. So the conch would be like that. Uh, Piggy's glasses is a symbol of technology. But these feces, if you want to call it that, laying around... They're also symbolic, and mm-hmm. we're going to see him develop the symbol of the boys getting dirtier and dirtier all the time, and there's meaning to that. Well, and at the same time, he that Ralph is concentrating on the fire and organizing the troop, Jack is going to speak up, and he's going to give a speech about the beast. And my reading on this, I kind of laughed when I, when I read it. I thought, it's the Franklin Roosevelt, all we have to fear is fear itself speech. And he gave all the reasons why there could not possibly be a beast on this island. And, of course, this is the only time that Piggy and Jack ever agree on anything. But Piggy speaks up and says, unless we are frightened of people. Well, that's true. And, of course, uh, Simon is really going uh, to cling to that idea. Uh, Simon is going to try to talk, and he's going to say, uh, maybe it's only us. Uh, and of course, this, um, he's going to go on to say, we could have sort of, and he's going to want to develop this thought, but he has struggles talking. He doesn't like to talk. He's terribly frightened. And then, of course, he says this, what's the dirtiest thing there is? just in general, and Jack takes this moment to hijack the attention from Simon, and he cusses. And this this is how the text reads. As an answer, Jack 
Jack dropped into the incomprehending silence that followed it the one crude expressible syllable. And of course, that's a four-letter word uh, for excrement. And when he said, which, of course, Golding was much more too dignified in, 19, in the 1950s oh, very English. to put this word in, a, in print. But the other boys, uh, the little ones, just fall back off the, their little logs. And it says the hunters are screaming with delight with this, you know, violation of words, talking about, you know, human excrement. And this shuts um, Simon down. And, of course, he, the thing is silent again, and somebody else is going to say, well, maybe he's talking about ghosts, and they have to have this long well, discussion about ghosts. they do. And they're going it to, it's hilarious. At one point, they're going to take a vote on whether or not ghosts are real. So I think that's an interesting statement. But um, there's a little one named Percival who begins to break down in uncontrollable tears, and his tears unsettle all the other little ones. And I think this, to me, really stood out. You can speak to this because you have more experience. But Percival finally says, uh, the beast comes out of the sea. The whole time, these boys thought the beast was on the island. And this was a small contained space. And all of a sudden, Percival opens up the beast could be much more enormously huge than we ever dreamed. And it has a shocking effect on them. And, of course, as... As the reader, we know that that's going to be true. The, it's it's not possible to contain the beast. But uh, this kind of dialogue divulges Jack's going to seize the conch, and you see the beginning of his disrespect uh, for the rule of law, for the rules that they had created. You also see him doing something that tyrants do to shut down argument. We begin that he starts this um, chant with all the kids, and then he starts name-calling. He says, you shut up, you fat slug. And then, you know, because Piggy wants him to, to let go of the um, conch because it wasn't his to have. And he says, there's rules, there's rules. And then, of course, the very famous quote that everybody who's familiar with this book talks about. Want to say it? Our good friend James's favorite line where he yells, bullets to the rules. <laughs> yes, in other words, so much for that. I guess if you were English, it would be uh, it would have more meaning. <laughs> and they, you know, they go out of control, so to speak. And right. Ralph, and one of Ralph's thought last thoughts is the world that understandable and lawful world was slipping away. So he sees it. Piggy wants him to to blow the conch, and he doesn't because he says, "If I blow the conch and they don't come back, then we've had it." We shan't keep the fire going. We'll be like animals. We'll never be rescued. Which is really interesting that Ralph, at his young age, realized that this was a power play. And if he blew the conch and nobody returned, that was worse than doing nothing. Right. So there's just three of them. He, Simon, and Piggy that don't participate in all this uh, tyrannical charade. And, you know, Piggy recognizes the evil in Jack. And he says, I've been in bed so much. I've done some thinking. I know about people. I know about me and him. And he recognizes uh, the evil that he sees. And then, of course, this chapter ends with this mo most ironic of phrases. Ralph is going to say, if only they could get a message to us, a sign or something. And that final phrase is what ends us ends chapter five and moves us into chapter six, where man, humankind, does indeed send them a sign, but it's not the sign they were looking for. No, and again, a, a very interesting hyperbolic sign: a random person falling out of the sky. <laughs> yes. So it comes up that this random—it's a parachuter. He drops in onto their world, kind of to remind the reader that the war is going on outside just right around the corner so man versus man the sibling rivalry is mm -hmm. taking place writ large writ large <laughs> yeah and we're seeing it and they're dropping it in so the sign is that you can't escape it but of course you're not supposed to be able to see that um, right. quite yet and I, looking at chapter six to the to sum it up very quickly for me uh it's it's about the the fire and the twins fell asleep in the beginning. It was their duty to keep the fire going. There was a panic about the fire. And that seemed to be cons the consuming point of chapter six. So bottom line, Sam and Eric have seen a beast. They saw the parachuter. It frightens them. They run down. They want to have a meeting. 
to talk about uh, this thing that they've recognized. It says, we've seen the beast with our own eyes. No, we weren't asleep. And, of course, we have dramatic irony because we all know what they saw, but they don't. Mm -hmm. So they decide that we're going to have to have a hunt or they're going to at least have an exploratory mission. And uh, somebody's going to say, I got the conch. And we see Jack shouting, conch, conch. We don't need the conch anymore. So there you go. He's completely anti-civilization. So they decide to go on this mission, to look through the island, and that's kind of what they do. And they lead the way, and they go up to this place that's eventually going to be where um, Jack settles in. It's on the other side of the island, and uh, it's very rocky. It is, and that is what leads into the next chapter. Right. Uh, There's a couple of things that I want to point out before we quickly get into the next chapter. Uh, and one of them is when they go up to the top of this castle rock, they see some boulders. And this has happened before. When they went up on the mountain, you know, Jack and Ralph were playing. They were exploring, and they found a boulder, and they pushed it down. They go, ha, ha, fun, fun. This time they see some boulders, and Jack is going to say, one heave, and we kind of thinking about murder. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Another foreshadowing, perhaps, maybe? I think so. Okay. All right, so... Well, in, in Chapter 7, where titled Shadows and Tall Trees starts off very interesting for me in this regard. They're exploring the island, uh, and to this point, they've really spent most of their time on the best side of the island, and at the best side of the island, they had some hope. They could make some comfort. They could... Uh, potentially, they, well, they just had some hope for the future that they might get rescued. Then they climbed to the other side of the island, and from these peaks, from these high points, Ralph is able to see the ocean in a way that he wasn't seeing it on the other side of the island. And there's a moment in the book where he looks out, and he is totally engulfed in realizing their isolation. He also, while they're doing this, notices how dirty he was, and he thinks about, man... I wish I could clean up and cut my hair and, you know, do all the grooming that I used to do back home. We also see on this, in this little exploration up the mountain, the development of Simon into this Christ-like character that I talked about. Now, Golding himself said that he deliberately wanted to incorporate uh, a Christ-like character. He said, I included a Christ figure in my fable. This is the little boy, Simon solitary, stammering, a lover of mankind, a visionary who reaches no common sense attitudes by reason, but by intuition. Uh, Of all the boys, he's the only one who feels the need to be alone and goes every now and then into the bushes. It's, he is really turning a part of the jungle into a church. And we see this developed in this, uh, this exploration mission because he's going to look to Ralph and he's going to make a prophecy kind of like a Christ figure would. And he says this, you'll get back to where you come from. And he says it again, all the same, you'll get back all right. Which is interesting because what does he not say? He doesn't say we'll get back as if he understands that he's going to die. So anyway, that's a, a little side Uh, We see also in chapter 7 a very important structural device. Now, a structural device is a a device that a narrator uses to tell his story. In this case, we're going to see a flashback. And this is the flashback uh, where um, Ralph is going to remember home. And he's Mm going to remember his father and the way that they used to live and coming home every day. And what this is, the purpose of this from a literary perspective is not for the boys to develop anything on their own, but it's for the reader to remember we're in midway through the book. Remember these are highly civilized upper class British schoolboys. Mm-hmm. These are not uh, Aboriginal people with very low civilized experience. This is the highest of of this, the height of the civilized world, so to speak. As the boys proclaim themselves early in the book. Yes. <laughs> and then this, this reference to civilization and these highly sophisticated 
um, British children is interrupted with a crash, and they're going to try to kill. He's going to take a shot at a pig. Okay. We're back to the pig hunts. We're back to the pig hunts. And this is uh, the sixth sixth hunt, if you want to count the ritual ones. And this is one where Ralph is in the group, and he's uh, trying his best uh, to kill the pig, and he can't uh, do it. He, he says, I hit him. I hit him in my spear. I wounded him. And, of course, Robert's going to snarl, and they're going to kind of play around. And in the middle of the one hunt, we see the seventh hunt, and this is kind of one of these symbolic hunts. They're going to make a ring, and they're going to uh, work themselves up into a frenzy uh, kicking and screaming as if Robert was a pig. Right. Robert made the mistake of kind of voluntarily joining the game, willing to act like the pig after the hunt. And yeah. Ralph is screaming and struggling and in a state of frenzy. Jack had him by the hair and was brandishing his knife. I mean, this is frightful. And they're going to chant, kill the pig, cut his throat, kill the pig, bash him in. And Ralph, too, is... Is kind of getting. They use the word overmastered. He's being right. overmastered. In other words, a mob mentality has gripped the group. And almost, I don't know. Is this kind of like a spiritual thing? This chant, this psychological, emotional revving up of your spirit, which is beyond your cognitive ability to control. I, I mean, I don't know, but mm-hmm. that's what it kind of reads well, to me like. Yeah, there's a lot we could say about that. That's a whole nother. Uh, <laughs> trail to go down but nevertheless robert's crying and sniveling and oh my oh my bum he's gonna say and ralph is gonna say it's just a game oh yeah it's once everybody calms down in order to deal with their uh, shame for losing control they try to minimize the people who are hurt most by it and then roger says something that i think super disturbing he says you want a pig like a real hunt they're talking about what they should do for the next time they have one of these frenzied rituals because they enjoyed it And Jack says this, um, you could get someone to dress up as a pig and he could act, you know, pretend to knock me over and all that. And then Jack's going to say, we can use a little one, um, almost like a reference to cannibalism. Well, certainly referring to one of the little ones as being expendable for the sake of entertainment. It's too much. Well, we're finding out Jack is too much in every circumstance. <laughs> yes. But I will say, the other boys are going to come out of their frenzy, and they're walking back because they have to have this discussion. They realize that they're not going to get back to the camp uh, by dark, and so they have to send somebody. Well, Ralph wants to send somebody to tell Piggy he's being left alone with all these little kids all night long, and uh, Jack is concerned. Like, why do you care so much about Piggy? And they're going to have this discussion. Right. And uh, Ralph is going to make the comment, like, why do you hate him? It, bringing up this uh, this evil ver- this evil vice of humanity. And when he asks this question, there's no response. It says this, the bird, boys stirred uneasily as though something indecent had been said. That's the first time we see any kind of reference to some sort of moral... Qu- so they don't want to be considered a hater, even though they just discussed cannibalism. True, but there's always an uncomfortableness when you put into words what people's actions are doing. When you begin to label behaviors and call them out to the group and for people to look at, it makes everybody uncomfortable. And they didn't. They refused to acknowledge what it was. All right, so um, we're going we're gonna to see that they're going to go up, and there's this... Um, well, let me just put it this way. They, they're going to go up the mountain. They kind of get scared. Ralph and Roger are going to go up. Then Jack's going to go up. And everyone else is kind of really scared to climb this mountain after the beast in the dark. And there's also the idea that, that Jack is making fun of Ralph and taunting him about his bravery and those kind of things. But when they get up there, they're going to see it. And they see a, they see it and they hear it. They see a thing on top. There's the ruffle, I guess, of the parachute, a kind of a plop. And a creature bulges out. I guess they think it's a gorilla or... Who knows? Hey, it could be any kind of beast. Everybody's got a different beast version, which is one of the themes of the whole beast thing. And, and I want to point out, throw out maybe it's an archetype, maybe it's not. But Jack and Roger and Ralph climb a mountain to take on a beast 
How many movies have used that as a theme? Isn't that the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy right there? Well, that's true. <laughs> but in this case, as soon as they see what it is, they turn around and <laughs> right, beat they, it. They run. <laughs> they run. I don't think I blame them. I don't know why you want to chase a beast in the dark anyway. I would have wanted to wait to the light myself, but no need messing with... Um, with what, the author, <laughs> what, what could have, should have done in such a situation in it's a not, hypothetical, and it's not real. Yeah. yeah. All right, and that brings us to our last chapter, uh, the last assembly. We're, I told you we're going to bookend with with this assembly, and this one is going to turn out uh, very, very different. So they come down and they say, "We've seen the beast. The beast is a hunter. We couldn't kill kill it." Ralph said, "My hunters are no good." Okay, so we see this description and it's very dishonest and I want to point Mm -hmm. out how dishonest it actually is. The narrative is dishonest and it devolves quickly into more name calling. Ralph thinks you're cowards. He's like piggy. He's a coward. And of course, coward is the ultimate insult. And we see this, you know, politics all over the world. If you don't know what to do, you just name call the worst thing you can Mm -hmm. think of. And that's Jack's play here. Uh, And of course, Ralph kind of calls him out on it and he wants to say let's just have a vote on who's going to be boss around here right and there is an attempt at a coup at that point in in kind of some uh brashness of the moment jack calls for a vote he thinks he's going to vote old ralph off the island or out of leadership and uh the vote fails and it's a super humiliating moment for Jack at this point. He cries, which is a reminder that he's a child. And he has to run away. Yes, he runs away. And, of course, this makes Piggy so happy. It says he's full of delight because he's finally gotten rid of um, He's kind gotten rid of Jack. They're going to now make the fire by the, in the more comfortable place besides the bathing pool. So he thinks things have... Uh, have kind of are looking up are looking up but it says this we'll have to have a small fire and so if fire is going to be symbolic of hope we're now down to a very small one and they do make the fire and while they do the little ones and the the boys because everyone but jack is there they start chanting again and by the end of the chant we notice that all the boys have gone they're all gone except for Piggy, Sam, and Eric, Ralph, I, and that's it. That's all of them. Yeah. So they're all gone. Even Simon, although he uh, is not going in the same direction as everybody else, Ralph is going to say, "Where's Simon? I don't know. You don't think he's climbing the mountain?" Which is exactly what he's done he's Mm -hmm. the only one we probably should have mentioned this earlier when they were talking about what to do uh he's the only one that wanted to face the beast that wanted to go up the mountain piggy thought that was cowardly and they nobody wanted to face it except for simon so he's just going to go on and do it himself and so in the meantime jack who ran away in shame has not given up on the coup attempt (laughs) because it says later on Far off along the beach, Jack was standing before a small group of boys. He was looking brilliantly happy. Um, And he says, he goes on to say, we'll hunt and I'm going to be chief. We're going to forget the beast. That's right. Yes, forget the beast. Convenient. And uh, so anyway, he's rounded up some of the other members and he's tried to turn them into the hunters again. And he goes on to say, now listen, we might go later to the Castle Rock, but now... I'm going to get more of the biggins away from the conch and all that, meaning Ralph. And we'll kill a pig and we'll give a feast. He paused and went on more slowly. And about the beast, when we kill, we'll leave some of the kill for it. Then it won't bother us, maybe. So a sacrificial offering. Which, right before he says all that, Golding reminds you who these boys are. He says, these are the boys who had been whose voices had been the song of angels before they had gotten to this island. So these angels are getting ready to turn demon, and that's exactly what happens because they're going to find a a pig, and it's a sow, which is a mommy pig, and it's a pretty harsh. I'll let you go with the description. Well, we'll just say they go into a frenzied, murderous killing of this pig, and uh, it's gruesome in details, that 
we won't get into for right now, but they do end up killing the pig. And even the scene after they kill the pig is gruesome. Jack is going to gut the pig and stand there in the pile of steaming entrails as flies gather around it covered in blood. Yes, and there is a little bit of uh, introduction of sexual language in this passage, and it set, starts off by saying that he was wedded to her, as in wedded to the sow, in lust. Mm-hmm. So we see this savage, feral connection uh, that's that's bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. And of course, while they're doing all this, and they get the head up for the beast, um, they cut the head off of the pig for the beast, right? Simon, this whole time, was watching in the woods. He was there, but not participating. They didn't know he was there. And he's looking and watching this. And as they, of course, run away to steal the glasses, he's going to look up and approach the beast and have this conversation with it. Now, the conversation that he has... Now, is he approaching the beast or the pig? Well, the pig. Okay. Okay. That's what I meant. Sorry. He approaches the pig head. uh, And we hadn't pointed this out before, but the text points out that he's getting dehydrated this whole time. Mm -hmm. And this maybe is a kind of scientific explanation of what's about to happen because he's going to have this conversation, this very significant conversation with the Lord of the Flies. Now, the Lord of the Flies is, of course, the title of the book. And so it's a very important symbol. Authors often use symbols to title their books. And the title is a translation of Beelzebub, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Baal Zavov. No, I can't speak Hebrew, but Baal is like... Close enough. Yeah, it's like what they used to have for false god in the Old Testament, which in Judaism and Christianity both kind of denotes the principles of evil personified. He, of course, is one of the chief devils. Beelzebub is in Paradise Lost. Golding equates the Lord of the Flies with this demonic force that's going to ultimately be present uh, in humankind. And of course, this force is so hideous that fly-covered excrement eventually is going to best represent it. Mm. Golding is going to present evil not as an abstraction, but as something concrete, a pig's head right here swarming in flies. So in order to account for Simon's insight into the nature of evil, you know, he set up Simon to be this Christ-like figure who sees and has already seen the beast is only us. And then, of course, he's going to say before, remember in that last assembly, what's the dirtiest thing there is? Mm -hmm. And we had that uh, cuss word of human excrement. Um, The logic is clear that if the humans are the beast, then what comes out of humans is human excrement, which is evil. In a moral sense. Yes, in a moral sense. Thank you. So thus, we have the two basic metaphors for evil kind of coming together, flies and excrement. So the Lord of the flies is the Lord of the dung. And and so (laughs) think about this as we're going to go over this whole excrement-covered island. Okay. Um, Yeah, which is, of course, going to culminate and the Lord of the Flies here on this stick. Great. Wow. So much going on in chapters 5 through 8. We see power struggles between Jack and Ralph. And we see uh, the evolution of personalities. And we see the uh, the evolution of, of morality or the decline of morality and a collapse of organization and rivalries that develop and things of that nature. So a lot goes on in chapters 5 through 8 to set up the rest of it. So much. And, of course, the final thing that I think we have to talk about, when they go down to get the glasses, um, they're going to have this this conflict. And the boys take the glasses, and Ralph tries to make this argument, what about about the fire? What about the fire? It doesn't make sense to him uh, that they don't want to help keep the fire going. The fire is the most important thing. Without the fire, we can't be rescued. Uh, Without fire, there's no hope. And of course, he says this, sometimes he is full of doubt about whether they should have the fire. So I think this is kind of the last point that we need to kind of make. How do you get to totalitarianism? I think you have to lose hope. Mm -hmm. You have to become nihilistic. Yeah, I don't care about 
anything. Any option is good when you're hopeless. And you become kind of, you know, self-gratification at the moment is the most important thing. And that's how fun is going to be the seduction. If you don't care about life, you don't care about your future, you don't care about anything beyond yourself, and all that matters uh, is uh, jolly good fun, as they say, then it's okay to devolve. And that's going to be the direction that Golding takes us throughout the rest of the story. Great. As we said, a lot going on in chapters 5 through 8. A lot that's foundational to the second half of the book because that finishes the first half of the book. And now we're going to get to the good stuff. Oh, all the stuff you've been waiting for. So, um, thanks for being with us today. Uh, If you enjoyed it, like what you heard, please follow us on our social media. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. We have a website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. You can get more information there. We have teaching resources if you want to use these in a classroom. Um, So, again, follow us on our uh, social medias and join us next time as we see what happens in the next four chapters of Lord of the Flies. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 